Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. It's the cowboy one. Living in harmony. Living in harmony, yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember watching this thing and just, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> well, it's production order 15. Yeah. Out of 17. So we're quite near the end. You've only got Girl Who Was Death mm. and Fallout left to go. Yeah. So we're the final lap now, aren't we? It's, it's It kind of makes a bit of logical sense because all the other ones preceding this had been sort of shot in one order and then screened in completely different directions and uh, made no sense. Whereas these last ones were basically shot and screened in, in the order that they were done. Mm. Now, here's, here's the thing. Are they are they running out of ideas or, or, is, or coming up with a brilliant idea? Well, there's, there's the famous story that they were asking the crew for ideas because <laughs> people like Eric Mivel submitted ideas yeah so maybe that's you know maybe that's the it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> sound great okay no. go, this is going, going into the bar with the uh, <laughs> with the gaffer and the crew does anyone here have any writing experience well it's funny you should say about going into the bar because the story shows that frank mayer was in the bar in the pub yeah with mcgoohan apparently after a game of squash and he said why don't you do a Western? And McGowan was like, ooh, now there's an idea. Yeah. I can see McGowan being a really hugely competitive squash player. Mm. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Out! It was below the line. <laughs> but, um, but we've got David Tomlin on this episode doing quite a lot. He's one of the writers, he's producing it, and he's also directing Well, it's, it's a bit like uh, everyone... All right, everyone, muck in. Mm. Because you've got the editor turning into the writer and the executive producer turning into the director. Yeah. It's a real sort of... Um, it's a union's nightmare, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Demarcation, come on. Exactly. They have sort of bundled the uh, union guy into a cupboard yeah. for this one, yeah. put a broom through the handle. It's, um, as a, to steal a line from another great Western, uh, Nietzsche said, out of chaos comes order. <laughs> and I, I, it's quite clear this was made in a state of almost mad confusion, mm. but I, it... And and it has a reputation as well. It's like, I think one guy has described this as the the the, the episode where the prisoner jumps the shark. Basically. Yes, I saw that. I say I don't I don't think it does at all. I no, think this no. is actually quite a clever conceit. Is where they've, they've said you know what can we do with the format and mm. let's play with the format. Yeah. And expand the format. But some TV stations were worried that people tuning in may not realise they were watching The Prisoner. So they added The Prisoner title to the beginning of Living Harmony just so anybody tuning in wouldn't be in any state of confusion. Ah, oh, but that's... I mean, that's, I know. I, I, it ruins I've, it a little bit, doesn't it? Well, I'd forgotten, actually, that they'd, uh, they went straight in and there was no titles. And, and I, it's obviously the wonderful irony that they actually put Living in Harmony on there while he's being filled in. <laughs> <laughs> but And it's only with the, the, the font you think, oh, oh it is, this yeah. is the, pr- oh, right, yeah. great. But I, do you know what? I thought this would be a great episode to start the second series. Yeah. To go in 
instantly with this deliberate bit of uh, audience confusing. Yeah. It was fantastic. And this was written by Ian Rakoff, who, mm. a South African writer who'd come to the UK. And apparently McGowan originally wanted him to write four episodes uh, and commissioned him as a, as a writer. There's a very famous story in Ian Rakoff's book, Inside the Prisoner, where he meets McGowan for the first time and he's kept waiting yeah. for about two hours. <laughs> so he reads a book uh, and then McGowan kind of ushers him in and basically just ex- explodes because he's got a lot on his mind, there's money problems, which, of course, is why he went to do I Station Zebra yeah. because the, he needed to... Because I think he was going to make about, at the time, about a quarter of a million from doing that film, which would finance the... Yeah, he actually used his salary episodes. from that to pay for the rest of the episodes, yes. didn't he? Yeah. What's Lou, Lou Gray doing? No, he must not have got anymore. A, they must have gone over budget. Well, yes. You know, and of course that would have been a way to to pay it off. Unfortunately for Rakoff, who had this, you know, uh, respect and affinity with McGowan, um, he was left in David Tomlin's hands Mm. and their relationship didn't gel as well as uh, McGowan and Rakoff's. I think he actually, if well, if you when you watch the show, it's it's not uh, script by. It's story by Ian mm. Rakoff, script by David Tomlin, and so I don't think Ian Rakoff was particularly happy with that. I know he was happy from reading the book that when he went to see the screening, that his name was, you know, he was still given a credit. Yeah. And that he notes he noticed that there were echoes of what he he'd written, but of course there was a lot of rewrites by David Tomlin. Yeah. In yeah. order to make it more. But I guess, of course, I mean, this is Tomlin's first ever. Um, step behind a director's chair. Mm. So he himself would have been pretty... But you know McGowan had great faith in David Tomlin. They were quite close. He, he, yeah, Oh, yeah, but even even so, apparently, initially, uh, he was a bit shaky mm. about the idea of it. But, but McGowan wouldn't have left David Tomlin in charge if he hadn't got that 100% faith in him. Oh, yeah, yeah. To do that, which, you know, and, and it shows. We don't even need to say this, do we? But, uh, of course, Tomlin went on to become... The greatest, yes, AD uh, uh, in, in the history of cinema. Yeah, so, um, but it's it was a, it's a good start. Mm. There's some great kind of blocking and framing. There's a there's a shot, uh, but very very close to the bidding. McGowan's the way he's holding the saddle mm. uh, frames the shot really very beautifully. Well, Rakoff famously took a lot of these ideas from um, comics like Gene Autry. Yeah. The opening with the prisoner carrying the saddle, because initially you see him some stock footage of the horse riding, (laughs) uh, and then you see him carrying the saddle, which, of course, is quite a a good budgetary cut because you don't have to get a horse in. (laughs) But, of course, he does have a horse later on in the episode, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Which is apparently called Viking. Viking the horse. Viking the horse. I thought you'd like that. I did. That's a lovely name for a horse. But um, apparently that opening of him arriving in Harmony is taken from a Gene Autry comic yeah, where he has the, the saddle. But it's, it's a great, it's a lot more, I think, rather than, you know, moseying on. Yeah. <laughs> With the coconuts. Yeah, you're coming on in clip-clop, you know, you're there carrying the saddle. Yeah. It shows you're the outsider, you're the eastward, the man with no name. There's a yeah. you're, sa- of... you're saving your fortune on by uh, not having an animal wrangler. I, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised the local Port Marion couple didn't donate their horse. Uh, <laughs> as, uh, <laughs> like Tammy, the cat. <laughs> Do you know what? Because I, I, I think this is the first time I've seen this one since I was uh, 17. Hmm. Almost immediately I thought, God, what does this remind me of? Westworld. Yes, the, first, oh my God. Yeah, the, the 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 great seventies uh, and the remake, 
I mean, yeah, the remake's fantastic, mm. but the film itself is a, such a, a, a very, very 70s classic film. But genius in the way they use Yul Brynner yeah. as the <laughs> android. He's terrifying in that. Oh, it's fantastic. God almighty. Yeah. It was on the other night, and... Uh, I, again, I always forget how good Richard Benjamin is mm, in anything. Yeah. And this James Brolin as well, isn't it? James Brolin, yeah. But, but I, I think unless you watch, if you're watching it with 21st century eyes, if you're not aware of The Magnificent Seven, it's lost on a lot of people that Yul Brynner is the gunslinger. Yeah. It's, you know, it's quite a genius oh, piece the, of casting. It's the coup of the century getting yeah. him. But, but I, that, particularly at the end of this episode, when it all starts to sort of merge with the reality... Mm. I was just thinking, this is this this is. I bet you Crichton probably may have spotted this and given him an idea. Mm. The idea of merging uh, the Western, all the, all the conceits, all the the tropes of of, of, of westerns, and then merging it with uh, with reality in some way. Well, you've, that's quite interesting when you mention Michael Crichton. Is that he repurposes the idea later for Jurassic Park? Yeah, it's exactly the same plot, isn't it? Yeah. Just, just, and this is what happened with Living in Harmony. It's the, the the same idea of the prisoner, but lifted and put into a Western setting, and you see that in the opening sequence, don't you? You see how he's 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 handed in his badge, he's resigned, yeah, and it follows the same kind of pattern, and then he arrives in the village. It's true, and you know he refuses to take up the gun, he refuses to play ball, and and to explain why, yeah. So it's it's clever that it's such a clever idea, but also a lot of fun I think for people like Frank Mayer. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You know who, according to his own admission, was you know it was a Western nut. And what I thought was lovely about this episode is not only that did he advise on you know the set dressing and various elements of, of westerns, but he also gets a character in this. He's third gunman, isn't yeah. he? We actually get to see him. His, his children are in the episode as well. Who's this, like, Who's the kid who rocks? There's a little kid who sort of wanders into ah, shots. Ah, yes, that's the son of the assistant director Gino Marotta. Was he, I think he was supposed to have a bit of dialogue as well. Yes, he was. Yeah. And, uh, actually, but sorry, it's... son, we're going to cut. <laughs> Come on, now. You'll get a speaking part. No, you don't. Oh, well, at least he's in it. <laughs> <laughs> he he, he kind of does look like he's not supposed to be in it. He just yeah. kind of wanders in. There's a kid here. There's a there's a story as well about Magoo and when he goes off to Hollywood to make Ice Station Zebra with uh, Ernest Borgnine, Rock, and yeah, Rock Hudson. That he would uh, he would cable Tomblin. Uh, fancy way of, of getting, the email of the day. <laughs> Basically, he got lessons on how to draw a gun, Western style, from Steve McQueen. Oh, really? And Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> well, there's 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 a bit of. Um, Canna was talking about this, wasn't he? Yeah, he was practicing at home with his cult peacemaker, wasn't he? He was getting in the the, the drawing, the fast draw, and all that kind of stuff. Does he? I mean, it's a strange the way they shoot that. Uh, they actually sort of framed that shootout mm. because you can't actually see Magoon shoot. And I, I can see why. Mm. But ultimately, you, you want to see them both pull at the same time, don't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. And, but apparently, according to Canna, he he won. Yeah. And then he gets shot. But apparently, he de- they actually went, went through the film frame by frame and yeah. he actually does get off the first shot. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, star power for you, I suppose. And he nicked the bit of holstering his gun before dying. I think that apparently Gregory Peck had done that. Ah, okay. In, in some films, so he was a. There's a lot of Western. Uh, oh yeah. Nods, aren't there in in this? 
well, that's kind of what it's all about. In a, yeah. in a, it, the other thing it reminded me of a little bit was um, Vanilla Sky. Which, okay. Which, when you, when you work out what's going on, mm. there's a sort of one of these kind of very clunky exposition scenes where they explain that he's basically constructing mm. his, his life out of cultural artefacts from his mm. past. The Dylan uh, album cover. And so he's actually recreating reality, but from just things that he's remembered. Yeah. And there's there's an element of that too, the the the, the deliberately uh, archetypal Western tropes mm. that he's assembling in his head, yeah, or are being assembled for him. But so that it would help him identify what the reality, this new reality, yeah. is, is made up of old uh, of old Western hoary cliches. Yeah. But you can imagine the audience, can't you? Some of the audience will be like, ah, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I'd, imagine, I'd imagine most of it. Do you reckon this may have been one of the, the episode when a lot of them left it? That ties in with what you were saying about a reviewer mentioning Jumping the Shark. This is still a mainstream TV show mm. with, with a huge budget and a great bit of press attention. Yeah, but if, but, you, but if you're already, I mean, you know, a lot of people who were watching this and, and got it. Yeah. And a lot of people, probably the majority, didn't. And they probably got to this episode and thought, oh, I've had enough. I, I can't, uh, it's, it's, if, if they'd stayed that long, yeah. you know, I think the casual view probably would have been, just been completely confused mm. by the preceding episodes as well. And, and, and I don't know. I think Jumping Shark's the wrong term, isn't it? It's hardly... No. Was it from Fonzie, isn't it? That's from Happy, Happy Days, Days, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> As he jumps over a, a rubber shark on water skis or something. It, it? It, it just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Yeah. But this episode of the X-Files called Jump, Jump the Shark. Is, is it? Yeah. Does Mulder jump over a shark? Or? I think it's just a, an allusion to the title, isn't it? <laughs> but um, no, I think, no, I think it's, it's still a strong episode and it's, it's daring to do something different. Yeah, also... From this point on, yeah, I know. I know the the the, uh, the assumption was we can't stretch this out anymore. Mm. We can't do twenty six episodes. But actually, after this episode, they could have gone anywhere. Yeah, it's like Frank Mayo saying this is all kind of in the mind anyway. Yeah, so we can do we whatever we want. We, we could do one in space. Yeah, but the, the, you, there's literally no boundaries anymore after this episode. And it's if they had, if McGowan had have gone on to do twenty six episodes or another season with twenty six episodes. Yeah. The possibilities would have been endless. Yeah, you, you know, you could have done, like you say, you could have done space. You could have done anything, time travel, or <laughs> set an episode in the in the distant past or in the in the future. Or as long as that reveal of the village is part of their machinations. Yeah, if they can somehow pull it back to that's a touchstone, the, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. He's got He's still going to be in the village at the end of it. But I mean, that's how Doctor Who survived for so long. Is yeah. that you can go anywhere and do anything and, you know, just tell a good story mm. with what you have. And I think The Prisoner has that potential. And yeah. I think this is the first dipping the toe into that pool of a wider world of that, rather than that spy trope, you know, dominance within the village, McGowan's character trying to escape or playing mind games with the village. This is something that not only confuses the prisoner, but also broadens out the scale of what's possible with the series. Yeah, yeah. And it is a shame, I think, that... In, in some respects, it is a shame that there are only 17 episodes. I think if, you know, I if do, they had I, been allowed to continue, or, you know, for whatever reason, I know McGoon didn't want to, but there could have possibly have been a greater yeah. scope. But at the same time, I mean, I think... I mean, what it is, is, is lost... Um, viewed as a great series, or is it? 
uh, or mm. viewed as a, a really particularly good se- first season that I, just stretched interminably you on. See, for Lost is, is probably a good one, but um, Lost, I think, is still got its, you know, it's had, what year was that, 2004? So it's a good nearly 40 years after The Prisoner mm. and all the shows that have followed in the inter- intervening time, the broadcast of The Prisoner and the broadcast of Lost. So, of course, it's, al- it's already starting to be derivative Mm. Lost and a lot. I enjoyed Lost. I thought maybe it was, you know, there were some seasons that dragged, you know, and there was a lot of storytelling that didn't really need to be there. But the general mysteries were pretty good. But a lot of the mysteries were explained. Mm. And like we talk about the mystery box, uh, Abram's mystery box, or a magician revealing their secrets, the prisoner doesn't really no, do no. that. And I think Lost might have been a stronger series if it was shorter. Even Lost doesn't really go anywhere. Mm. Outside of the of the island and the flashbacks, really, apart from the final season where it has this kind of sideways existence. Yeah, if you haven't seen the series, I won't spoil it. But the final season is where they actually do something different with the characters. But that took them, you know, quite a few seasons to get there. Yeah, I just remember that the uh, the first series was such a huge hit mm. phenomenon. And then reading that uh, they commissioned another four series or yeah. so seasons. Forgive me. Really, that's a ter- that's a terrible idea. But like McGowan, I think McGowan had an idea of what he wanted to do with the ending. Mm. From what I've read, he knew where this was always going to go, and it was just a point, you know, case of getting to that. And the same can be said with Lost in that they knew what how they wanted to end it. Yeah, and it was just a case of you know getting that funnel to get them to where they wanted to go. Yeah, so. Well, I don't know. I, I quite like the fact that there's only 17. I, I like that it's 17. It's such a ridiculously mm. specific, yeah. odd number to have. There's no no other. 13 would make sense because that's half of 26 of syndication. But yeah, but 17. Th- it's probably the only series in existence that only has 17 yeah. episodes. It's just a l- another bit of uniqueness to it. Well, the, there are four additional, aren't there? So 13 would have been... Yeah, plus yeah, the four, yeah. so maybe that would have been the, the halfway point for syndication. Of course, shot on the back lot of MGM with some reused sets from Charles of Big Ben and ABC. Did they use any re, uh, reuse any sets from other westerns? No, I was I was just looking around thinking, I wonder what the but the, what what westerns though? I, I, exactly, yeah. You know, we, we, the British film industry <laughs> not really well known <laughs> for westerns. <laughs> This I think this is probably the first British Western, isn't it? I can't. Well, there's, yeah, the part part from carry, carry on, on uh, cowboy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what I love about this is it's full of stereotypical Western tropes. Yeah, yeah. As well, there's almost comedy. The, the horror with a heart of gold. Yes, or Mexican Stan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, played by Larry Taylor, who was actually from Peterborough. Really? Yes. He was voiced by Robert Rietti. Yes, I, I, I assumed he was. Yeah. With his marvellous teeth. <laughs> but even that's a, that's a cultural stereotype. Cool. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he was in Zulu, wasn't he, uh, Larry Taylor? That's where I saw... Yes, because I knew he's familiar. I, for some reason, because until I worked out that it was Robert Riesi, I assumed mm. he was in uh, just all these... Uh, picturing me in the Wild Bunch or yeah. the, the Dollars trilogy. No, no, Zulu, of course, of course. Yeah, he was in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as well. Yeah. One scene I like in this is the hanging scene. Which, which was cut in some areas, and it basically uh, cuts to Kathy and her reaction where she faints. Well, yeah, it's, it's you don't you don't see 
uh, the hanging. No, but it's quite clever for the time because it's shot POV, isn't it? Yes, yes. So it's handheld. It's shot by cameraman Len Harris, and he fought, and you see his point of view, and he's lifted up onto the horse by two stuntmen, mm. and then of course you see the noose, and then they hit the horse, and then it's Kathy's reaction. Yeah, yeah. and that was quite a um, contentious scene, and it was cut from. Some releases. It was. There's the story, isn't there? That um, I don't think it, was, it wasn't about this, but it was, uh, some other show, some guy had been hanged. Well, and a, a boy had. In that book, it says that a 14 year old boy killed himself on the Sunday evening after this episode aired. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and his father attributed the lynching scene in Living in Harmony to his son's suicide. Oh, right. So I, that's from Rakoff's book. Yeah. But. Who knows? Yes, yes. I might mention this to Mr. Barry when we speak to him, but uh, mm. in, in America it was take the the episode was excised altogether, wasn't it? Well, the, in the in ninety two when the VHS releases came out, mm. which had the wonderful penny farthing yeah. spine, do you remember? <laughs> and I think uh, you got a video with it, the Prisoner Video cam- Companion, mm. which is full of apocryphal <laughs> and factual information. <laughs> but they claimed that it was due to the Vietnam War. And that it was, you know, they they cut it due to the Vietnam War. I think, I suspect, and I suspect that David Barry will will give us some information mm. on that later in the episode. The other tropes I noticed is uh, it is the um, walking into the silver dollar, yeah, and the music stops. That <laughs> yeah. guy, minor key, yeah, it <laughs> just, you know, Rick Mail sat in the background with a dart in his hand. <laughs> From uh, American Werewolf. You made me miss. <laughs> it is a bit of a trope, isn't it? It is, but it's a great trope. I, I get annoyed when people walk into saloons mm. and they don't stop. Yeah. It's like, hang on. The other other trope as well, and it's completely impractical, are, are the saloon doors. Yes. Because in real westerns, in, and I think they did this in, in Deadwood, where you have these t- saloon-type doors, which are obviously to obscure anything going on, gambling and stuff inside it also acts as ventilation yeah as well but there are also doors that close in the evening and you know overnight which are there and of course a lot of these these western they just have the saloon they just door. have a saloon doors and of course at you know two o'clock in the morning anybody could just walk in and help themselves to the to the liquor <laughs> couldn't they <laughs> but there were additional doors in real saloons that would close and, and provide that security yeah but they do away with them in <laughs> In Western shows, don't they? Well, it's, it's, they're saving a quid on the uh, the extra doors they'd have to put in. Yeah, uh, they were they were they had an eye on the budget at uh, uh, this phase. One thing I do like, I love the fact that we get to see Frank Mayer's face. Oh no, finally, as, as the third gunman. But do you know who the other stuntmen are? You have Bill Nick and Peter Braham, ah. who was Roger Moore's stunt double. Ah, oh, that's from right. the yes. <laughs> so it's a real stunt-heavy episode, this, isn't it? And also you've got this sense of getting your mates in, getting the stuntmen's <laughs> union in. It's brilliant. Um, they were probably making that around this about the same time, weren't they? Probably, yeah. They probably just borrowed him. Yeah. Just distracted well, Roger Moore. they knew each other, it. didn't they? Oh, yeah. Are you, hi, Pete, you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, <laughs> what are you doing Saturday? Oh, come and uh, be in. a tree. Yeah, do you want to get your Western gear on? <laughs> I mean, it is every kid's, particularly back then, mm. more so, but it's every kid's fantasy, isn't it, to yeah. be in a Western? But they must imagine, have had such fun doing it. Because the, the, the costumes are from Berman's uh, costumers, film costumers. Oh, yeah. So as you imagine the phone call, can't you? Yeah, we need about uh, 30 <laughs> Western outfits. Th- what? 
For, are you going to America? Yeah. No, no, no. Because <laughs> some of those outfits look very fancy dress. I think Magoon's does. Apparently, he was quite chuffed with the way with his duds. Mm. But yeah, he 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 looks kind of cod cowboy, doesn't he? And his hat changes shape a little bit, doesn't it? Does it through the episode? He doesn't look 100% comfortable in a hat. No. And he's got his John Drake voice as well when he was American. Yes. That's tra- this mid-Atlantic yeah, accent, yeah, yeah, isn't yeah. it? That is not my... <laughs> that is not my uh, number six is John Drake uh, theory at all. It's just a, just an observation that he's... Uh, Apparently, um, towards the end of the episode, where the P on number six mm. it, it has that fight with the, the gunmen, and uh, Frank Mayer's third gunman goes through the window, yeah. supposed to land on a mattress, and apparently missed somehow, <laughs> <laughs> hit the studio floor, and apparently turned the air blue. Well, uh, I would. <laughs> yes, he wasn't very happy with his landing. Well, yeah, how do you miss... Oh, it must be so embarrassing for any stuntman to miss a mattress. Mm. It's almost like stunt, stunt mannery 101. <laughs> So we're honoured to have Dave Barry with us today. Yes. Uh, and you may know Dave's name as one of the founding members of the Six of One Appreciation Society, probably without which we wouldn't be sat here talking about the prisoner today, thanks to their influence and keeping the flame of yes. the prisoner alive. Yes, so reigniting years. it in, in the 70s, and from which the light has been burning ever since. So Dave, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Lovely to meet you. And you. How are you both? Brilliant. Very well indeed. <laughs> Very well. Uh, you helped uh, Ian Rakoff, the writer, with this rather marvellous book uh, that I, I managed to get hold of. There was a, a lovely bit when you actually described uh, the project uh, over a home-cooked meal and a strong bottle of wine. And <laughs> Just tell us a little bit about the, the, uh, the writing of this book. I was always keen on meeting the writers, and Ian was on my hit list. And I wrote to him and agreed that I'd go and see him. And he was very wary of me because he had spoken to some others, of course, you know, prisoner prisoner fans, mm. but he cottoned on that I went in at a deep level. And in his South African accent, he said, Dave, I've been commissioned to write a book. You know what you're talking about. Would you help me? I said, Ian, I'd love to. <laughs> in those days, I travelled widely for my living, and I spent a lot of it in London. And so what I'd do at the end of a day is I'd drive over to Ian's, who lived in an eagle's nest in a very tall, old Georgian building, and I'd walk up. He, he would let me in by one of these remote control devices, and I'd walk up five flights of stairs, which would get me out of breath, get to his flat and be welcomed in as he was preparing home-cooked meal, which would be, he always makes bread. So there'd be that, there'd be homemade hummus. And we'd sit at a table and I'll take along a nice bottle of Rioja or claret, which he appreciated. And we'd sit there from about half past six to 10 while he went through his latest writings, asked me for comments, asked me if the facts were correct, what else could I bring to what he was writing there? And it was it was wonderful because I would be there probably one day a week, three weeks out of four, for the best part of four or five months as the book took shape. 
And towards the end, Steve, the editor, came in. So there was Ian and myself in one room discussing what he'd written, while Steve was in the other room trying to make sense of the editing. So being a project like that was, was wonderful. And the thing about Ian, you've got to remember, is that Ian is a man of substance, mm. which is why McGowan took to him. He was born in South Africa under apartheid, which he abhorred. He was a sickly child, but as he grew up, he started associating with, I suppose you'd call them, well, members of the ANC. And at one point, he was the only white man in an all-black group, and he carried a gun. But he was warned that the authorities were onto him and he'd better get out, And which is why he came to London and having worked on a Richard Todd vehicle in South Africa, amongst others, called the Hellions, which was a kind of variation on a Western gunfight at the OK Corral, Ian managed to use that to get some leverage and get into the uh, trade. And then, of course, he met John S. Smith, an editor who had just been commissioned uh, to, to work on editing The Prisoner. And Ian went along with that. So Ian was actually quite close to McGowan because McGowan used to come in at the end of the day, sit on a bench with his legs swinging, swigging a gin and tonic and asking to look at all the rushes and for their comments. So that's how I met Ian and our relationship continues to this day. I've invited him to Port Mary and I've interviewed him there. I think his book's marvellous, really, although some people only give it a two stars, others give it four, because it's, it is about radical filmmaking and about how he took to McGowan, calling him a gentleman rebel, and how McGowan in turn took to him because he could see that Ian was on his wavelength. Yeah. Do they have a, a pretty strong relationship i mean the description of that first interview it says you're going to write the script for me and it sounds absolutely terrifying yeah yeah he says here the association with mcgowan had changed my direction he was the role model for me to be myself in the all absorbing world of film he was a thinking caring egalitarian i believed in him and he goes on to say had mcgowan been a politico in my home country i would have thrown my lot in with him yes very, very much so. What happened was that they were running out of ideas. They'd started with only four completed scripts and they had to make a set number. Originally, Lou Grave wanted 26, but McGowan knew it couldn't sustain that length. So they settled on 17. But the point came when they were scratching around for scripts and the script editor, George Mark Stein, had a belief that the series should go in one direction, which was very much one-dimensional, whereas McGowan, and he was a creative force, wanted it to go in another. So with his departure, they asked the crew, have you got any ideas? And the various members of the crew submitted what they thought were story outlines and came up with the idea of a Western. Because as a child, and being confined to bed, it got hooked on comics, American comics, things like, and he loved the Western genre. So Gene Autry, um, that, that was his, his whole world. 
And so he thought, I've got a chance to write a Western. So he did write a story outline. And parallel to that, McGowan, Tomblin, his really partner in crime, and fearless Frank, Frank yeah. Mayer, the stump man, <laughs> were propping up the bar as they did every night at the Red Lion. And they were thinking, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? And Frank Maher said, you know, this series is all in the mind anyway. We could go anywhere. Why don't we do a Western? And McGowan thought, yeah, I've never done a Western. There's never really been one done in England, unless you discount the carry-on film. What about that? And it was fortuitous. That that's when McGowan saw Ian's outline plot for Living in Harmony. So they got together and they started writing it. And McGowan was incredibly supportive. If, if you've got the book or you can source it online or from the library and you've got a, a copy inside The Prisoner, there's a great deal in there about how their partnership developed. Because McGowan said to Ian, looking at what he'd written, Ian, you do know you are a writer, don't you? But what cut across it was that they were running out of money. McGowan had this complete creative control, but it made Lou Grade and his money men very nervous. So fortunately, McGowan got the opportunity to do a big movie for John Sturges called Ice Station Zebra in the US. And it coincided with the break in filming that would always occur. The filming season would begin at the end of the school holidays, really, uh, August, September, and go through till about May when there'd be a break. And then people who stayed would reassemble for if there was going to be a second series again in September. Well, a number of the crew had decided to leave and some, some stayed. So Ian learnt and McGowan told him, I'm awfully sorry, I've got to go off to do this film, but I'll leave you in good hands, David Tomblin. So Ian found that working with David was not as easy as working with Patrick. Although Patrick was demanding, Patrick could see that Ian was on the right track. And uh, there came a point, unfortunately, that Ian found that it was very difficult for Tomblin to accept his ideas and they were going in different directions. McGowan, McGowan very much admired what, what Ian was doing. And unfortunately, Ian was caught up on the back end of when the finance people were really on the back of McGowan. But McGowan's earnings enabled them to complete the final four prisoner episodes. And what I like about them was they were all out of the box. Living in Harmony, it does get a... It's knocked a little bit. It's sort of described as a filler episode by a lot of people, but I think you, you're, you're a big champion of it. Uh, what do you think? What do you think oh, yeah, right. How do you think this, this particular episode gets uh, goes so right? By the time Living in Harmony is shown, we have got used to the format. We sit there, okay, he's in the village. There are these various ways of getting out of the village, like you see with the body swap in Do Not Forsake Me, or in A, B, and C with the use of drugs. But suddenly I switched on and thought, 
what's going on? This is a Western. Ian had conceived the beginning and McGowan had said, you've got it right. Plunge them straight in, keep them guessing. And so that opening that we got filmed on Dunstable Downs, the prisoner gets beaten up with the ironic caption, living in harmony. I just thought, I'm going to enjoy this. And of course, as it plays out, you can see that it's totally the prisoner situation, but transposed to a different environment. And that's really what captivated me. And of course, it was a jolly good Western. It's, as they said, uh, it, it, it is all archetypes. You know, you've got the, the drifter that comes into town. It's a bit like Shane. This stranger comes in, you know, but in this case, he doesn't have a name. You don't find out where the town is. And Ian lifted that idea from a Gene Autry comic. Somewhere in that particular comic was the name Harmony. And he thought, oh, that's, that sounds like a good name. So he called the town Harmony. And so you got all the, you know, the good time girl. You got the bent judge. You got the, the psychopathic killer. And so all the ingredients were there. But how are you going to get out? Mm. That's the key. And I thought that that was done just wonderfully. Yeah. Frank Mayer, who was a very close compatriot of Patrick, he said, Patrick, you know, let's do this Western. And Patrick said, providing I leave it all to you, Frank. And Frank said, when we interviewed him, Westerns were my thing. He said, I love Westerns. So they sourced all the proper gear. So it really did look authentic. It was, I, th I think it was influenced by the Sergio Leone dollar films because the first one, Fistful of Dollars, had been released in the UK only four or five months previously. They shot this. And then the way it comes out, and people think, okay, you know, but the, the, the cardboard cutouts and everything—it's—it's—it's it's, it's all, all—it's all very clever. Yeah. And yeah. I hadn't seen that be, before. And then the theatrical deaths of the protagonists—I thought, okay, you could pick fault with it, but I liked it because I thought perhaps they'd been fed the same drugs that he had immersed them so much in the reality that the prisoner was experiencing. So for me, Living in Harmony liberated the series even further. One yeah. of my favourites. We talked about The Psychopath. Uh, this is, of course, uh, Mr. Oh. Can, Mr. Canner's debut. Um, was it his yes. idea to, to, to drop all the dialogue and, and play him silent? Oh, yes. Alexis. <laughs> wow. What a guy. You know, I've got nothing but admiration for Alexis. I got to know him very well. I was tasked with being his minder at a convention, the first one he came to that was in the 1990s when he left LA and came back to the UK to, to live. And he and I got on very well. And for some reason, he took to me and I had a mobile phone in the car and I'd be driving around and the phone would ring and uh, I'd answer it. And a voice would say, Dave, where are you today? 
Oh, I'm on the M5, Alex. <laughs> anyway, I got to know him well. And um, when I interviewed him in 2003 at the Port Merring Convention, and I asked him, you know, you know, all about his role in the series, it emerged that both McGowan and Tomblin had seen films with him in, small films, and that he'd worked with Tomblin on a film. McGowan liked his acting, and Tomblin did too, and they thought that he would be just the right person because he had this charisma, the screen persona, the camera loved him. So he went along and he looked at the script. Tomblin rang him up and said, uh, Alexis, do you want to do a Western? <laughs> yeah, Dave. <laughs> so he went along and they said, look, it's a Western, but that's not really what the series is all about. And they explained and Alexis got it. So he looked at it and he said, do you know, I could make this much better if I didn't speak. Now, normally actors want more lines, but Alexis took the opposite view. He had to work with Tomblin because McGowan was still in the States, but he and Tomblin got on really well. And Tomblin said, go and source an outfit. But the one thing that you've got to have is a top hat. Because as you can see him, for example, the undertakers in the village, they wear top hats. And Alexis went and thought, what can I dress in that would make it look as though I'd sourced everything from the victims that I'd killed? Yeah. And so he dressed like like that. And his his whole acting, you can see him seething this persona. It, it just erupts off the scene. Funnily enough, the casting director said to Tomblin, you don't want to employ him. He'll eat up the scenery. He is he's just so charismatic so yeah. so that's how he got not to say anything and, and how how he actually appeared in the girl who was deaf because he said i didn't have a role but dave was lonely and said would i would i go along to the fun <laughs> fair with him yeah <laughs> he's a photographer isn't he yeah he's yeah. Yeah. shouting yeah. gibberish yeah. Yeah. yeah they made it up on the hoof and because his hair wasn't black they used boot polish <laughs> to color his hair <laughs> so alexis yeah yeah he he was um just electric and what i did was i got him to read out the lines at the convention and i gave a long-standing member gladys mccairns the other part of the script for her to read the kathy lines and when you hear the two of them in interaction despite whatever gravitas that Alexis could bring to it, the lines really aren't awfully good. They're very pedestrian. <laughs> and so, you know, by dismissing them, and it became just so much more. Mm. It's a very sort of the sort of pantomimic performance. Mm. He throws, he uses his body incredibly well, but doesn't he? McGowan doesn't really. Oh, have yes. That, in the episode, um, it's quite a dialogue light episode. Yeah, I, I think Kathy seems to have most of the, the dialogue. Or David Bauer. Yes, yes, of course. This cop is really uh, a fistful of dollars where, you know, they don't have dialogue, they have facial close-ups. Close it is it is a, a well-directed episode, considering this is uh, Tomlin's first crack at it. Mm. Uh, he does use the sort of the, the language of, of Westerns very, very competently. I mean, they're, they're fantastic shots. 
where at the end where he's on the she's on the staircase and then Alexis's face appears from the darkness. Mm. So yeah, I was very impressed by his direction. Yes, so was Ian Rakoff. Ian went along to see it. He'd been invited to go along and see it at Elstree um, MGM Studios where they were making it. So he'd been invited along to see the the premiere of it for the crew. And he sat there and he said, he said, I couldn't remember, you know, what I'd written and what I hadn't. But he said that the, the direction by Tomblin was first class. Thank you very much to Dave Barry there for giving us his time. Thank you, Dave. Does, there's also a little bit of foreshadowing in this episode uh, with, the, with the cards that the, the judges... I see, yes, I, 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 I've got a very sort of self-congratulatory note here mm. about uh, oh, what number's the card? I'm not going to ruin the end. Oh, no. Also the lamps, the, the white globe lamps. Yeah. It's like uh, echoes of, of a small rover in the lamp, <laughs> isn't it? Is nice. I wonder what they were going to do if they were going to have like a Western version of rover. <laughs> or would it be some... <laughs> It's a medicine ball. Yeah. This gets hurled. A wigwam on wheels. Because <laughs> we seem to have everything else, don't we? Yeah. That pops up in that episode. There's a, a funny story, actually, talking about the um, the bar, the silver dollar, which sells prickly pear beers, as it, as it oh, really? states. As it states outside. Of course. Oh, yeah. Canner, uh, Alexis Canner, where he stubs out the cigarette on, the, on Michael Balfour's... Uh, yeah. character Will, he stubs it on his neck apparently the makeup department had put in a patch on his neck to protect his neck yeah. and kind of missed it <laughs> <laughs> so that reaction you see from Michael Balfour is, is genuine, genuine yeah. <laughs> I was going to say he got him on the wrong side of his neck <laughs> God, that would have hurt yeah. it was a cigar as well wasn't it it's, you said about Westworld and I thought it's it quite an interesting Connection because the the reveal at the end of this episode is um, number six wearing a headset. Yeah, and then you've got the village, you've got the Western Village Harmony. You've also got these these cardboard cutouts as well, and they mention that he's been drugged. Mm. My first thought was this almost a little bit like a virtual reality setup. Yeah, but with the drugs and being having that information fed through, maybe there's like a, a signal being fed through as well, and that his perception of reality is being distorted by whatever's playing in the headset and they're voicing these characters mm. they maybe like a, some kind of psychotropic drug which is controlled and we get back to the village's uh, yeah. drugs aren't we the big they're, farmer market <laughs> they are uh, they're, they're taking a lot on on trust aren't they that mm. we'll just think well i just put a pair of headphones on him and mm. the audience will get I, what? Yeah. What the hell? But they have to guide him, don't they? They have to construct the narrative, so they have to give him some yeah, yeah. direction in where to go with this. We, I was a little bit confused about that. The way it's shot, they've, they actually have a, a, a Western setting just next to the village. Because, of course... <laughs> it's very elaborate, isn't it? It is. It's very elaborate. The, the, I'd forgotten all about the kind of the coda hmm. afterwards. I just thought... The, I remember him... Uh, the cardboard cutouts and everything. I thought that was the ending. I'd forgotten that uh, they have this strange, rather kind of rather melodramatic mm. ending. I'd, I wasn't sure that I wasn't 100% sure about it. Alexis Canner's character number eight, when he's revealed as, you know, as a henchman or, yes. you know, he's, he's in on the plot with, with number two. His death seems very odd that yeah. he should A, kill himself and B, I mean, he only falls about 
<laughs> seven, eight know, foot, doesn't that, it? That, that would have actually really hurt, but yeah. that's about it. There is a sound effect to imply that he's broken his neck as well, isn't there? Just quite light, but it just seems that whole tidy up, that whole wrap-up seems quite odd. It does seem odd. It's like, well, why have you suddenly just gone mad in the last ten seconds? And tried to kill Valerie French's revealed character. Yeah. She dies kind of easily as well. Twice. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I just thought, what, what's, the, what are the, what's the point they're trying to make with this ending ending? Mm. I think it, it, it would have been a strong enough ending had he just walked out and the doors closed behind him. It's like, oh, my God, it was all... Yeah. Genius, and he, yeah, he he didn't give them the information. And then the strange, odd. It is an odd ending, isn't it? Yeah, really? it doesn't it doesn't quite work. Though it does have that wonderful shot mm. of Valerie French uh, sort of weeping on the stairs, and mm. then Alexis Canner's face looms into the darkness. It's a brilliantly framed moment. There. How old do you think Valerie French was during the film of this episode? Uh, she's either seventy five <laughs> or she's eighteen. Yeah. Go on. What do you think? Um, 30? It's 39. 39? I know. Wow, she's beautiful. I know. What am I saying? She is, <laughs> she's, a, she's a stunning, yes, beautiful woman. Um, but I think it's because they wanted a, a character who was potentially a love interest for number six in this yes. episode. Or, Before McGowan just went, right, no, kiss You, kiss you need here. someone the no. same age, don't you? You don't want to go with a, someone Jane Merrow's age because that just would just feel a little bit odd. Yes, um, a little bit entrapment. But, yeah, 39. <laughs> it, 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 you know, they've cast right. They've cast, uh, get me a 40-year-old stunner. <laughs> That's how the <laughs> says. <laughs> Who's the two? So this week, it's American-born actor David Bauer. Mm. So yes. He was born in Chicago in 1917, but he had more success uh, over here. Well, it was kind of in Chicago style. He was run out of town a little bit by uh, good old General, not General Senator McCarthy. I think he probably thought himself a general, Senator McCarthy. He was he was on his hit list, and like so many uh, great American talents at the time, they came over here, much to the benefit of our film and uh, TV industry. He's quite he's a familiar face. As soon as you see him, you think, "Where the hell have I seen him before?" And it's. A lot. He's in. He's in. He pops up in ITC stuff. Yes, he does. He quite a bit. He was in a. Not a, many films though. No, he was in one of the Amicus films. Mm. Um, ah, Torture Garden, mm. playing a, a sort of. A, a, he had one that's kind of very sort of powerful. He had a sort of George C. Scott chest yes, that's sort of like, like a wardrobe, and um, he, he kind of had a lot of power with him. He had a very rectangular sort of rhombic face, <laughs> so he could command. He could play generals quite well, mm. that sort of thing. And when you needed a, a, a UK-based American to sort of wander into a shot and sort of start shouting at people, he was probably he's the, the, guy, he's, he's the guy to go to. <laughs> I think for most people, they probably recognise him from Diamonds Are Forever. Morton Slumber. Mr Slumber. <laughs> <laughs> Morton Slumber. I think that was... What a name. I think you get to the... Was, he, was there a Morton Slumber in the book, Diamonds Are Forever? Oh, I don't know. I, I think all Fleming's novels are way, way different, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's the kind of... I think Diamonds Are Forever is the, one of, is the point where it almost becomes... It almost becomes... It does become a parody yeah. of itself. And it's the kind of what would Fleming have called a a, a mortuary guy, <laughs> Morton, Mr. Slab, Morton Slumber. So, oh, brilliant! <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, Slab. 
Uh, and he was fantastic in there. And he had a very recognisable face. You sometimes think, is he being dubbed? Mm. And it's not. That is his voice. But I suspect they probably called on him to dub quite a few other people because yeah. he's got that. He's one of the rec- most recognisable faces of the 60s, even though he's not in much. And it's funny that you should mention uh, George C. Scott because he was in pattern with him. Oh, was he? Yeah, he played uh, General uh, Harry Buford in Patton. <laughs> so, yeah. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. Department Air, Strange Report, uh, The Saints, uh, Randall Hopkirk. Yes, yes. He, yeah, he was, he was definitely on that call list. Get me David Bauer. I need an American. Yeah. <laughs> Al Mancini's not available. Get David Bauer. Shane Rimmer? It's, um, something a bit odd about the way he looks in this episode as well. They've clearly the, greyed his yeah, hair, haven't they? Yeah, he, he looks a little bit purple. Yeah. In, in, in a weird way. We talked about with uh, with Dave a little bit about the the international connotations of having an American number two, but is it you know, after the big reveal? Is it me or is he putting on a bit of a British accent? Well, it's funny you should say that because Alexis Canner also does, and I think that is to separate the characters from the fantasy yeah. and the reality of the village to show that he's probably going with. Well, it's not really a British accent; it's more of a mid Atlantic. Yeah, accent. but it's a sort of are you. Are you trying to do an act? Because it's obviously his natural accent all yeah. the way through the thing. Maybe Bauer, or maybe the direction for the episode was that he had to be British. And maybe he was putting on a British accent for that. Yeah. Or maybe that was a choice that he made. It's a bit of an exposition-heavy yeah. scene, there, isn't it? Of course, after that scene, uh, they go back to the set in mm. a slightly odd coda. Uh, and there's a mini moke there. I think, I think you have a little tale about this. Well, what's interesting about that mini-moke is that the number plate isn't covered by the taxi sign. It actually has a British registration. Ah. Uh. So <laughs> there were apparently four mini-mokes made for the show. So it's very difficult to tell, obviously, which is which throughout the run. And this mini-moke was discovered in Holland not that long ago by a guy called Phil Kant, who basically lovingly restored it back to its former glory. And it now can be seen at, you know, these, these classic car, yeah. cars of uh, film and TV kind of exhibitions and, uh, and shows, as well as prisoner conventions. Yeah. And there's a video on YouTube that you can find where that mini-moke has been restored and it's driving around Port Marion. So it's, it's come home. Well, what have you... Uh, there's a rather lovely parcel in the post for you recently. <laughs> what was that? Yes, uh, I got a... A, a tip off that um, part of the original roof was on eBay, um, and so what I think what Phil has done, he's basically managed to to get the original roof, which they weren't able to repair, so it, and, and replaced it with a new one. Uh, so that vinyl piece of covering has been cut up and sold off to fans. So I've, I've uh, I took the opportunity to to get one, to like a holy relic. Yeah. So it's quite nice because it is definitely the mini moke in this episode. Yeah. Living in Harmony. So a little piece of, of that episode is now happily on my wall. Oh. Scores, 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 scores. Right, this is a bit of a difficult one because I haven't quite reconciled whether this is basically the beginning of the end of actual ideas mm. and a desperate attempt to just kind of prolong the series or whether it's a genius idea that could have spelled a very interesting 
other future for the prisoner where you know the whole episodes it could have just each episode could have ended up mm. being uh, part of number six's imagination you could have gone mm. anywhere and this is quite a an interesting way of doing it i think it's it's, it's actually a, it's actually a much better episode than i remember i'm i'm not i'm not down with the the ending i actually i would dock a point yeah, for that. For but it, it's it's in terms of an allegory upon an allegory I, it's, it works, I think, mm. and it's 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 clever. It's effective. It's it's interesting. Being, I guess, so yeah. I'm I'm gonna give it a four. Yeah, I, do you know what? I, th- I think I'd agree with you. When I first saw this episode, I didn't like it, probably because at the time I didn't really enjoy westerns. Mm. I found them very cliched and stereotyped. And I think I saw this and I thought, oh, it's a western, and I just couldn't be bothered mm. watching it with with fresh eyes. Yeah, I think now knowing a little bit more about the backstory about the the you know, how it came to be, actually deserves more credit than it gets. Mm. And I think uh, with Dave Barry being quite a champion of, of the episode as well. Yes, I think there's a reason. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, it could have gone anywhere after this if, if they'd have continued. And, and I think the, the possibilities would have been wonderful. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm glad it didn't. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, you kind of think, well, yeah, on the back of the strength, on the strength of this episode, it, it could have done. Yeah, and everyone would sort of date that moment from from this episode. So, yeah. well, that's when they realised they could just do anything. Yeah, but it um, was not to be. But at the same time, brevity is the soul of uh, of wit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and all sorts of things. So, thank you very, very much indeed again to uh, Dave Barry for coming on. Join us next week for one of the strangest, silliest, most wonderful uh, or terrible. You decide. We'll uh, discuss next week. The Girl Who's Death. Free For All podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton and special thanks to Jemima Duncar for the artwork. Please see you. You can find us on Twitter at Free For All Pod or on Facebook at Podcast Free For All.